Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality, and I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, I've got two reality heavyweights, Doug Ross and Alex Baskin. They have stellar reputations in our industry, not just for making amazing television, but for being really good guys, and I can vouch for that. They produce some of my personal favorite shows like Real Housewives of Orange County and Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and their hit show, Botched for E!, and now the spinoff, Botched by Nature. Well, guys, what can I say? <laughs> Thrilled to have you. Thrilled to be here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, I always start by sort of like how we met, and so I met you guys about a year ago. You and I, Doug, talked on the phone. and uh, It was. It was during Real we'll- Screen West... 2015. Ah, those were the days. Oh, (laughs) I'm nostalgic already. Uh, We we kind of fell in love a little bit, I thought, on the phone. Absolutely. We we clicked immediately. (laughs) I hoped it wasn't one way. (laughs) Embarrassed. Unrequited. Exactly. (laughs) Fine, I'm in love with you. And then um, I think we Skyped then with the two of you. We were like, oh, this is so much fun. And we just kind of been in touch. And you guys are, you know, two of the two of the guys that everyone's like, oh, I love those guys. And, and of course, I feel the same way. So um, I also happen to watch all of your shows, love them very much as a viewer, forget a producer. So we kind of, evolution's been around a while. So just to set the stage, um, Alex has, uh, Doug started the company in 87. Yeah, and 29 years ago. That's unbelievable. But what was reality TV 29 years ago? It wasn't 29 years ago. It was called... <laughs> Uh, unscripted, nonfiction, documentary, and I have come out of the documentary filmmaking world. Those were my early jobs. And so when I was stupidly and naively ready to start my own company, the kind of uh, background I had, the uh, contacts that I had, and the know-how that I had was all documentary. And the early jobs we got were doing segment work for other producers in a documentary style. And of course, reality today is still based in documentary filmmaking technique. And we didn't even realize it at the time that we were part of the leading edge of what would become reality TV. And were you like right out of college, I want to do television or documentary film? Like what was the impetus to from get From about it? the time I was five years old, I knew I wanted to be in TV. I come from a TV family, not a TV making family, but a TV, TV watching. watching family. <laughs> and we, uh, my parents and my sisters, we all still love TV today. We talk about it all the time. It's a common bond that we share. And What were you watching when you were a kid? Oh, well, everything from Gilligan's Island to <sighs> Mannix to The Carol Burnett Show, Mary Tyler Moore Show, All in the Family, which, uh, interestingly, Alex's father was one of the writers on All in the Family. Now, who is your favorite character on Gilligan's Island? Let's not get off track. Great question. Well, it's funny because I just clicked past it the other night, <laughs> and right. I thought, does it still hold up? No, it doesn't. It didn't hold up at the time. <laughs> I totally was. Alex saw right through it. Yeah. He's like, this but is a fake island. I, kinda, I wasn't lying. I kind of liked Ginger, of course. Mrs. Howell is so fascinating. Relatable, I think, too. I think I had oh a God, little Ginger crush was like on an the professor, though. I was just going to say, yeah. Professor was so hot. But Ginger was like a housewife, if you think about it. Oh my yeah, she she would have totally made an amazing She would have made a great housewife. <laughs> Too good. Yeah, so we watched everything. Yeah. And I knew from an early age I wanted to be in TV, but I thought I was going to be making shows like The West Wing and Friends and <laughs> Breaking Bad, even though I, that didn't exist at the time. <laughs> Little did I know I'd be making The Real Housewives and 
Big Brother and Fear Factor and. So you were so so flash forwarding so uh, so Big Brother and those were stuff that you went on like as an independent producer or was that Evolution at the time? Did you guys at Evolution were you the first producers on Big Brother in the states? We okay. got tapped by Endemol, which was the company that owned the format, to launch it in the states, and it was a wild, rocky ride, and CBS did not like the creative juice that Endemol was putting into it, but Endemol had create a complete creative control, and we were their guys. They had hired us, so we actually said to them early on, we really think we should Americanize the show. And John DeMol said, we have a perfect format. We got a 70 share in Holland. You can't change anything. And all season long, there was a battle between CBS and Endemol about what the show would be, and we were always in the shadow of Survivor, which had premiered on the network about six weeks earlier and was a gigantic hit. And even though the ratings were actually very good for Big Brother, it was considered a flop. And at the end of the season, the head of the reality division, Gen Maynard, took me out to lunch and he said, you know all those changes you've been dying to make all season long? Well, we're going to make them next year, but not with you. We have to let you go. We have to show the O&Os and the advertisers we're making a clean break. Tough business. It was a tough I business. Mean, Honestly, and then do you just shrug your shoulders? I mean, like, what do you do? It's so... We went on and, and we, we realized that what was selling right then and what CBS wanted was more spectacle and less storytelling. And the reason we were brought in is because the Dutch thought we were good storytellers. And that's what had made the show work in, in Europe. And we thought, all right, if you want spectacle, we'll give you spectacle. And we created a show called Fear Factor, which was all spectacle. I didn't realize you created that. Yeah. Wow. It was a, a group effort. But uh, Endemol had a put pilot deal at NBC. And we were still in good stead with them. And they said, let's come up with something. And we looked at a bunch of their formats. They had one called Now or Neverland, which was a failed series uh, in Holland that featured a competition between the Dutch and the Belgian each week. And one thing about that show that we liked was they had this big stunt. We thought, what if we took that and made a whole show of stunts? And Fear Factor was born. And then at that point, Endemol tried to purchase Evolution. And we entertained it. We went down the path. The deal was shitty. And we said no. And then they took that show away from us. And so we, in the course of 18 months, we had... Launched Big Brother, developed and launched the first season of Fear Factor, made Endemol USA what it eventually was to become, and then we got left on the sidelines. Wow, what a story. I mean, I hope no regrets on that one. Uh, <laughs> not really regrets. It actually kicked me in the ass so hard that it was the best business lesson I ever learned, and we became much better businessmen, much better politicians for ourselves, and a lot more savvy about how to read the room and where to put your loyalties. We had put our loyalties in the wrong places. And so you also beefed up development because I think that you put all the resources um, of the company into building those shows and you weren't left with anything at the end of it. And so it also changed strategically how you viewed what you needed to do completely. And we got very, uh, enticed and lured by the big money of network, Broadcast. but, uh, we, Looked back and our roots had been in cable because up to that point, all of our successes had been in cable. And we thought, all right, let's do well in cable. And since then, uh, we've done over 40 series in cable. 
we recently started a new some show. Some of them even successful. Yeah, some of them even <laughs> we've successful. Heard of a lot yeah. of them not. It's, it's kind of funny that we've actually, we've done now 57 series which is ridiculous, ridiculous. And, and you've never heard of most of them. <laughs> but you've no, heard I of, probably have heard of them. You've heard of enough of them, and it's just kind of amazing yeah. that we've, we've gone down that path. Amazing. So you, in a way, you did. You returned to your storyteller roots, and which is a different muscle and animal than the people that do the sort of more formatted spectacle stuff. And yes. you guys are really more known for your – not that you haven't done uh, formats, but that your doc stuff is really what defines you, I think, of – today. It it does and we find that kind of amusing because a lot of our successful shows were formats like Ten Years Younger or Clean Sweep, which we I did, love that show. You know, uh, over several hundred episodes of each. Alex recently developed a format which is our one of our biggest hits right now, Botched, which is completely a format. But so, relies on good storytelling too. Yeah, well as long as you brought it up. So when you developed that, I mean you you obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, you developed it with those guys, with Terry and Paul in mind, though, right? Well, what, was it like the real Nip Tuck? Was that the thought? That, exactly. Okay. So we had, um, and I apologize for language in advance, but developed it as Nip Fucked. So that's how we took it out to the marketplace. <laughs> and the origin story of it was that um, Paul Massive had been off The Real Housewives for a period of time and was looking to get back on television. And we were talking to him about what we could do. And at the time, we had been told plastic surgery wasn't selling, which, of course, was bullshit. It meant that it hadn't been sold. Didn't mean that it couldn't be sold. And it's a great genre, obviously, with a the best before and after imaginable and really emotional stories. And so in talking to Paul, we asked him uh, what his day-to-day was like, because it's always the place that we like to start as storytellers. And we said, so you know, what do you have next week? What kinds of patients are coming in? And of course, a lot of what he told us was not that interesting and not ready-made for television. But the minute that he mentioned revision surgery to us, what clicked was, okay, that's something that you haven't seen on television before. And that is a slight tweak to a conventional plastic surgery series and might make it different enough. Then we thought about adding Terry Dubrow to the mix. We didn't know that Paul and Terry even knew each other. And in fact, they hadn't spoken in many years. Didn't they go to medical school? There was some like old, old connection between them, though. Like They had worked together. They'd worked in the same office okay. many years ago. Right. Um, but they had, and they had talked sporadically through the years, but it wasn't like they were close by any means at that point. But they really liked each other and had great chemistry together. And, and, so, and for the uninformed, so Paul was uh, married to Adrian, who was a housewife on Beverly Hills. They split up, and and then Paul, I guess, wasn't really on the show anymore, and she left the show. And Paul so. wasn't on the show anymore, and then she left the show, and Terry was still, um, and, and is still on Orange County, married to Heather DeBro, who's a housewife. And um, so we thought, all right, things work better with buddies, and we got them together, and it was like the old times that we didn't know they'd had. So pure happenstance. So we did a very bare bones, cheap chemistry test between them. And we just had them kind of riff on how they would handle revision plastic surgery for celebrities who had gone under the knife to very unfortunate results. And they were great. And what example did you use for the test? There may have been some Jacksons. It's possible. <laughs> a few Jacksons. <laughs> and some others, yeah. So, um, so that was really a lot of fun. And we took that out into the marketplace. 
Um, and then, sure enough, once the show became a hit at E, then other networks started, uh, in kind of after the fact, explaining away why they didn't do the series. So they would say things like, well, that's just a spinoff of Housewives, so we couldn't have done it, which it's just not at all. So it's kind of a typical story in that sense. I think the thing that's really fun for us about that is not only is it a fun, feel-good show that's really entertaining at the same time, but it was an unexpected success. And so for us, oftentimes we fall in love with the things that we're developing because you bust your ass on them and you have to believe in them through all of the turmoil of getting something to series. And then you see that either it doesn't connect with the audience or it does connect with the audience, but the network doesn't push it enough promotionally. And in this case, it was a little engine that could. And even though it wasn't necessarily the cleanest, clearest fit for E, they couldn't have been a better partner on it. They completely believed in it. And we were all astounded by how well it did and how well it built and how well it repeated. And it's become a really important show for us. Amazing. And, and you know what's interesting, though? They did have a show way back when, as you remember, Dr. 90210. Great show, which Paul was on, by the way. Paul was on. Yeah. A few years later, the company I was with developed a show for them, um, gave us money for a presentation called, the, they renamed it The Real Lives, um, Plastic Lives of the Upper East Side. So it was the original Married to Medicine yeah, right. with plastic surgeons. And I still think they, the, the executives, um, Eddie at the time, Beth Greenwald and Jason Salarnas, who I love, they still talk about it because it was like one of their favorite <laughs> tapes. I think that just it was just when the housewives are really coming up. And our women just were not as loud and yeah. crazy. I mean, they were crazy, trust me. But anyway, my point is, is that when we did that, they kept saying, well, it will work for E because of Dr. 90210. So they did. E had the history there they did. They did, and to it was, pave the way. And we caught them at the right time yeah. where it had been just enough time since Dr. 90210 that they were open to getting back into plastic surgery. And as you know, so much of everything comes down to timing. So it, I think junior level executives mm -hmm. always look at the announcements of shows and say, I had that idea too. Everyone has had every idea. And it comes down to the right attachments, which also Although the right I, I don't think that people had the idea for revision. That was all you, it was just a, a passing comment that Paul made, but it sparked something in you and you realized, wait a minute, that's never been done before. And that made it unusual. So I do think you should take a little bit of credit, but it is about the timing. And the, it was two days ago we were having cocktails uh. with Terry talking about the future, and Terry has big plans for the future. And we went back and started rehashing the steps and the path that led to the success of Botched. Because everything has to go right for something to work. If one thing doesn't happen, and in there all that were sequence. a million yeah. little things, and a, a little carve out here, and a conversation with the producer or a network head there, and Terry was up for a couple other shows at the same time, and we had to negotiate how to play all of that, and had any of those things not gone our way, it wouldn't have worked. Everything had to line up, and it was one of those rare instances where everything did. It's almost scary because even looking back at the success of something, you realize how precarious it all is and how little control you have. And so we fight like hell every day to try to make everything work or continue on or whatever. And we cannot control all of the forces of the universe. You can. Sometimes that's a good thing. Because yeah. if things take its natural course. And I want to go back to what you said because I think it's a great point. Like 
and it was great to give Alex the credit for the revisionist part, but in my opinion, really probably why that show is a hit is timing, but really because of Terry and Paul. It's true. So I always, way Absolutely. back when, before Trump became fucking Trump, I used to say everyone had the idea for The Apprentice, but right. Mark Burnett had Trump. And so to me, it's it's really the talent that you attach and that chemistry that ultimately is going to elevate whatever format it is to make it a hit. Because you could have gotten, I was casting for the same show two years before with two female um, plastic surgeons who were best friends in North Carolina for Lifetime. And I loved them, but they weren't big enough. Well, there's no question. I mean, you only have a hit if the talent gives you a hit. I think that it's a matter of figuring out how to package them. And so the idea kind of gets you through because you can't even get a receptive audience without that. And then you're a hit when the talent makes you one. I mean, when people talk about Housewives being a great original concept, I think it's a pretty amorphous concept. I'm not sure what it really is. What's great (laughs) about it is the cast. Yes. And that's what works. A hundred percent. And a question about Botch, I was thinking, so it's a format. Are, are there Paul and Terry's in like Argentina and Greece and all the, like, has it been, have they been able to spin off Botch in other countries with finding the same two doc, like two doctors that know each other? Yeah, I mean, they've definitely taken the finished episodes and uh, and traveled those around the world because Botch travels really well, as you would imagine, because oh, yeah. it's Especially very South visual. America, yeah, <laughs> right. It's true. And then, um, and then not sure exactly what they're doing in terms of replicating it. Um, but I do know that we've provided the Bible for it and all of that good stuff. And yeah, absolutely. If they can find another Paul and Terry, then... God bless. Is botched by nature? Uh, is that did that come from you guys, or did that come from Paul and Terry? Like, how did that the spinoff come about? It was really kind of a combined effort, and the uh, actually the impetus for it was we had a lot of patients who wrote into botched who wanted help, but we couldn't actually serve because they had been literally botched by nature. They were born with a disfigurement that they wanted corrected. And that isn't the definition of botched, which fixes bad plastic surgery. So that was the original uh, stimulus of it. And then um, as we had kind of talked to the network, then there was the notion that it would be really fun to put Paul and Terry on the road because in botched, you see them in the office and performing surgeries the whole time. And so through that combination and really through the collaborative process with E!, then we got a really quick decision on Botch by Nature, and we were off and running. And it's good. I can't wait to see it. Um, and in terms of, let's go back to Alex for a minute. I want to obviously get into our housewives. But so you joined Evolution in what year? And kind of give us the trajectory. Sure. So I've uh, joined Evolution in the beginning of 2006, um, which, uh, God, is a long time ago mm-hmm. at this point. So <laughs> over 10 years. But um, I had uh, grown up in a television family as well, but uh, with a and father. And what does that mean? Yeah, so in my case, it was a father who was a television writer. Um, and as Doug mentioned, he was a sitcom writer. And so I grew up in and around the business, but I didn't have any illusions about what it is. And I knew firsthand that it can be tough and it can be shitty. And I was never discouraged from going into it, but my parents were certainly very excited when I went off to law school. And oh, you did. I did. And what was that path going to be? 
I didn't know. I just knew. I had no idea. It wasn't idea. TV. That was it was, it right. Exactly. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated college. And law school was, at the time, a natural next step for people who didn't know what they wanted to do. So it was a great kind of way station. So um, I had met Did you Doug, say waste station? Way no, station. Yeah, yeah, way, well, yeah. It is one way of looking at it. <laughs> I, had, um, I had met Doug a few years before then because um, coming off of my senior year in high school, I had interned at MTV. And I had set up a pilot there when I was really young and oh produced it and had met with different production companies during that whole experience. And whoa, 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 a whoa, whoa. one of them was Evolution. Yeah. yeah. Well, wait, okay. So you just were like a kid and you had this at what 18. was 18. 18. Yeah. I love this. And what was the what was the show? So it was a uh, youth peer crisis counseling hotline. MTV at the time was doing... Uh, Loveline, and they were also doing Jackass, which was doing huge <laughs> numbers for them. So they wanted to do something that was socially responsible, and Loveline was getting on in years. So I, and I cannot believe that I had the audacity to do this, and, and I wouldn't uh, today, but I had been kind of brought into development meetings and was sort of treated like I was a member of the team when I was interning there. So I made an appointment with the head of development at the time, John Miller, and I said, I want to pitch you like other people come in and pitch you. So I got dressed up that day and I acted like, you know, I was worthy of a few minutes of his time and I wasn't. And I pitched out this project to him based on my experience with this hotline. And John said, I want to do it and I want you to do it and I want you to be a producer on it. And I was really excited until I realized I had no idea what the hell I was doing. So over the course of meeting with companies, because obviously someone would need to come in and actually make the thing. Um, I'm surprised since, you didn't set up a company with Avids and all that. I, I mean, I was like Doogie producer. <laughs> exactly, you know, exactly. Um, then means. Doug and I met, and did someone introduce you guys? Thought like Doug could be a good fit for this. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, um, so then when I went off to, so but, but they didn't choose us. Oh, how dare you? And what did you think of Alex when he came in? Were you like, this kid's am- am- amazing? I recognized the second I met him that he was unlike anybody else <laughs> I had ever met. And I wanted to hire you yeah. right away, but oh he turned it down. But you got the last laugh because then uh, when I finished up law school, I called Doug up and I had just taken the bar and I was unemployed and all of my friends were going to fancy law firm jobs and making a bunch of money and going on bar trips where the where firms paid for them to travel across the world. And here I was pathetically unemployed. And I called Doug up and said, you know, you wanted to hire me years ago. Well, is that job that didn't even really exist at the time still available? And uh, Doug said, I would love to still hire you. Let me talk to my partners and see what I can do. And then called me back and uh, called me on a Wednesday and said, do you want to start on Monday? And I said, actually, I'd like to come in tomorrow. <laughs> what the hell am I doing? So I started on Thursday, February 2nd, 2006. And that's where I've been ever since. That's a great, great story. But who made the MTV show? Or was it a pilot? Pilot. Yeah. So I had to fail. So, the, so here's the <laughs> yeah. conclusion. I have to I, know how it ended. Yeah, right. Sign of things to come. I had a failed pilot by 19. Not well. Uh, you're gonna. I mean, it was inevitable. You're gonna be a huge success, right? I mean, <laughs> failed pilot at 19. You can only go up from there. Oh man. So yeah. Was plenty it a good pilot? pilot since then. No, it was terrible. <laughs> it really was bad. It was a. It. It was. It was a. Do muddled you still have mess. the tape? I'd be so curious to see. I do. Yeah. Yeah. VHS. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm sure great. that it doesn't hold up either, like Gilligan's Island. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So when you started, were you producing shows? Like, what was your role at Evolution at the beginning? I came into the development department. Oh, from day one. Got it. Because you just had ideas. He was an idea factory. And Doug really took me under his wing from the beginning and exposed me to everything that the business, excuse me, everything that the company was doing and all facets of the business. So my learning curve was so accelerated because he was so generous um, with the access. And so uh, I got to see the good, the bad, and the ugly right away. I recognized immediately that he was much smarter than me, definitely the smartest person had, who had ever come into the company, <laughs> and somebody who I could uh, someday ride his coattails. And so it's true. I started including Alex in Every pitch, every meeting, every network event, Alex was there, and I treated him as if he were my equal. And very quickly, the people in the outside world started seeing him that way, too. And, uh, it, and of course, he rose to the occasion immediately. Right. Did the law school degree help in any way? I think it did. In what way? I think it did, too. I think that it, it definitely sharpens your analytical thinking. It definitely demystifies a lot of business. Um, and I also think that I was just a different person at 25 than I was at 22. So I think that um, I was more ready to be in meetings. I think that I was more ready to be in a business environment. So I think yeah, I definitely appreciate it now more in retrospect than I did at the time where I was cursing the fact that I had... Uh, I thought wasted three years of my life right. while my friends who were getting into business already had a leg up. Yeah, but do they all hate their life now? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, no <laughs> doubt. Like miserable lawyers and look at you. All right, so then when did the whole sort of Bravo Housewives era begin and how did it begin? I think it happened about the same time. It did. It happened in 2006, I remember. We were doing a, a couple of projects for Bravo at the time. First, we did a doc series called Gay Weddings, and this was long before gay weddings were right. in the news. And now it's called Weddings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, Bravo was, was and still is very progressive yeah. and very right. pro-gay. And we followed four couples over the course of a year as they tried to struggle in a time period where getting married as a gay couple was not cool. And it really turned out beautifully. And the storytelling was very rich. We wanted to do a second season, but they uh, wanted us to try something different in the gay arena. We ended up coming up with a uh, competition series called Boy Meets Boy, which was a gay dating show. And the twist was that some of the guys that our lead gay guy was dating were secretly straight. And so it was a uh, reversal of fortune. Yeah, of course you did. I've got, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I, I remember that. The straight guys <laughs> yeah. were the ones in the closet. And right. it got a lot of positive but a ton of negative right. press as well. You did Pe a lot of media for it, right? People were outraged. Yeah. And I did, we, I did media all the national media, yeah. but Newsweek did a big uh, center page story on it. And it was very controversial because people were offended. And yet we were super proud of it because all the straight guys who went through the process were blown away by what it was like to be inside the closet. And it was, and I thought it was very entertaining. Was uh, it your idea? It was our idea. Yeah. And so we were working on those two shows and uh, they had just bought 
the show called Behind the Gates from a gentleman who lived down in Orange County who had put his neighbors on tape. Was that Scott Dunlop? Scott Dunlop, who we're still in business with today. He's still one of the executive producers. And what happened, Bravo gave Scott and some other producing partners the opportunity to make the first season. And they really had never made television before. And it didn't go very well. It went over budget immediately, and they ran into a lot of legal issues immediately. They... The network decided that there was something there. They believed in the characters. They thought, and this was at the time when Desperate Housewives had just become a giant hit on ABC, and this would be the reality version of that. Right, and this was just to be clear, the precursor to Orange County. Behind the Gates was Real well, Housewives of Orange County. Yes, right? it, okay. they it became the it. Real Housewives they of Orange County. Yeah. Ca- so it right. didn't sound like a concentration camp show. <laughs> <laughs> right. Seriously, yeah. That was no, one of I, the that reasons. was actually, yeah. And uh, so, in the middle of that, they uh, took they exercised that clause in the contract that's rarely exercised, where they took the right to take over the show, and they brought in some of the people who were working on our shows to go over and help fix and get that first season done. Mm. And it did okay in the ratings, not great, but there was a little uptick each week. And they thought that they were onto something, and they said, in the hands of some more grown-up producers and some better storytellers, yeah. maybe it really could become something. Would you guys be interested? And we said yes, and they said, but if you take it on, you also have to take on all the legal issues that still survive from season one. We naively but thankfully said yes. And, and s- side note, I remember watching the first season, and I'm going to be totally honest since you guys didn't produce it, and fast-forwarding through every housewife but sl- um, uh, Joe. Joe, yeah. That was the only storyline that interested me, which is funny because it, as it evolved, the, all the characters became better and they switched out most of them. But It was really a trip for us. We've done like else. retrospectives <laughs> yeah, and yeah. specials, and we've had to go back and watch the early seasons. Right. And I remember being into season one. But if you watch it now, talk about not holding up. It's just a completely different show. It was very small. It was very slice of life. And it didn't have the group interaction. Right. Nothing happened. No. Yeah. It's like, look at this woman. Look at this woman. Very tame by comparison. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So we suggested that there should be group interaction. And uh, we, with the network, I mean, we didn't do it on our own. But we really did refine how the storytelling was executed. And it became a big hit season two. And we were doing season three and they called us and they said, you know, that show that we've been producing in New York called Manhattan Moms. And we did because some of our crew had been moved over to that. Uh They said, with the success of Orange County, we want to rename this and rebrand it The Real Housewives of New York. And simultaneously, they they had bought a show in Atlanta called Hotlanta. And they were, everybody understood this idea of this ensemble of women, but Bravo rightly understood that they could create this incredible franchise, which they've now made well over a billion dollars on, God bless them. And they actually hired us to write the Bible, uh, which we did, uh, how to do it and how how the graphics would work and how the packaging works. And they still stick to it on all the franchises pretty much today. We 
for a long time, early on, we said we want to do a housewives up here in Beverly Hills, and they said no. I mean, they said no a thousand times. Yeah. Why? Well, I think there was a concern at the time about overdoing it with housewives, mm-hmm. and they were about to embark on um, DC, no. and Miami was in development too. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was also the concern that it might have been a jumping the shark kind of moment, or do we really want two in California? Um, you know, at one point we had conversations about the difference between Beverly Hills and Orange County, which to us was like the difference between New York and New Jersey. Right. So, um, so that. And what is that difference? I'm so curious how you articulate it. We often say that we might only be 70 miles apart it, geographically, but we're 7,000 miles apart in terms of the culture and, and the way life is. The folks in New York who run the network really didn't see it that way initially yeah. because to them, all of Southern LA. California was right. the same. <laughs> yeah. And and so that, what's the biggest difference between the two as you guys see it? Well, I think just Orange County feels more suburban and it's a little bit more of the Southern California lifestyle. And I think even though LA is a Southern California lifestyle, it's showbiz. It's a different kind of person. And so I think that... Um, you know, there are some cast members that you could see in either show. But when we started casting Beverly Hills, I think pretty much everyone in that show very squarely fit into and defined L.A. and Hollywood versus Orange County. You wouldn't see Lisa Vanderpump on Orange County. Kyle and Kim were child stars. They belong in L.A. Camille Grammer was L.A. Beverly Hills was the first show that Bravo let us incorporate their lives in the media and how the media was affecting their lives because it it made sense. They were part of the Hollywood community. Whereas on the other shows, even though, especially in Orange County, now that they're all famous, the media is part of the lives, but we're not allowed to tell that part of the story. We we need to keep it their family and their interaction and their suburban life. One of my favorite experiences of being a housewife producer is a couple of years ago, there was a panel at Real Screen in Washington, D.C. about the Housewives, I guess. It was about the Housewives. And Producing the Housewives. So yeah. the night before the panel, uh, the network hosted a dinner, and it was the first time we had met the other producers from all the other franchises. It's like the Crips and the Bloods. No, yeah. it was so much fun because we all bonded over what a crazy ride it is to get a housewife through a, a season. And even though everybody's stories were had their own unique spin to them, we all had the same experiences, it was, and it was so much fun to talk about. It was fun to hear like the New Jersey version of what we've been through on Beverly Hills. Yeah. What does it mean to get a housewife through a season? I love that. I want to know what that means. There's nobody better than Alex Baskin to usher and guide a housewife through the season. Well, I think that uh, it's an experience. It's a very up and down experience, and I think that it's very, someone's first season is very different than subsequent seasons. Because and why? Because I think that once someone goes on television and exposes herself to the masses, and in particular to social media, which we have a love hate relationship with, because obviously it supports and pushes the show, but at the same time ends up defining it too much because Mm -hmm. the cast members become very conscious of the reaction to them. And then oftentimes during filming can uh, just be thinking about how social media is going to react to them at that moment and not be themselves. 
I mean, that happened. Sorry, I, I hope I'm not like, pu- you know, pushing up the rock, but I felt like that with Camille Grammer. Like that first season was a gift from God. Yeah. I was like, I can't believe I've been delivered this housewife. Second season, I wanted to, I'm like, where, where did Camille go? Yeah. I'm going to kill her. She's demure, demure and sweet and not talking. I'm like, okay, bye. <laughs> bye. The, the first season really was the real Camille. Yeah. And it was a blast. It was fun. Right. So I think But even everyone if you could hated say, her and she didn't want to be hated. They love they love to hate her. Right. But and she didn't they like really that. Loved her. Like, no, and she didn't like that. She had yeah. a very hard time with it. Yeah. And um and that's too bad. It will never <laughs> be as pure as it is in a first season. Yeah. And one of the things that we always say is you spend someone's first season trying to get them to be who they are, and you spend their second season and beyond trying to get them to be who they used to be. It's such a strange journey for these people who most of whom have not spent their entire life trying to be on television right. like an actor who works at it, studies for it, and has many roles leading up to hopefully their star turn. And by the time they get there, they're, th- this is what they've worked for. These, for the most part, almost all of them are people who went about their lives, raised families, never thought about being on television, get plucked out of obscurity, and then overnight, once the show starts airing, become huge uh, celebrities. in And they're fair game because they're reality stars. So right. well, one of the things that we always talk about is if the difference between a movie star, a scripted television star, and a reality star is at the airport, no one's going to approach a movie star because they're larger than life. They'll just kind of gawk. They might demurely approach a television star (laughs) because they think they know them from their living rooms. A reality star, they'll not only approach them, they'll tell them exactly what they think about them and all of their life decisions. And they'll want to touch them and take pictures with them. So I um, recently taped a podcast with the producer, Eric Evangelista, and we were talking at the end. I'll ask you guys what your favorite favorite top three reality shows are. And he said, I thought that this past season, not the one we're in right now, of Real Housewives of Orange County was TV gold. And then we sort of got into the Brooks Cancer thing. It was like cereal. Yeah, it was. It was like cereal. I mean, did you guys see that coming? And and by the way, the dissection of it is still happening because it's bleeding into this season. And I listened to this amazing podcast, I think I told Alex, called Bit Sesh, which... They don't. They always say no tagging, no tagging, because it was the second the housewives find out, it's all it all blows up. But it's these two actresses that one of them also writes the um, hot, hot, hot housewives of, for Hulu, and they go, they just go deep. And I mean, sometimes I'm laughing so hard I can't breathe. But they were talking about the Brooks cancer thing, and the thing with Vicky is that she still can't admit that she had a part of it. Anyway, so I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But did you guys see that storyline coming? And how was it sort of as the producers on the other side navigating your way through it? Because it's it, cancer is a big fucking deal. It's not like a fun, you know, it's, it's no Lyme bi- disease, but, it, you know. <laughs> it's a big deal. And we didn't know what the real story was. We were trying to follow the ups and downs and go down the rabbit hole with everybody at the same time. There were huge debates back in the edit bays in the story department about whether or not Brooks was lying or not whether or not Vicky was in on it. We did not know. And so we were sucked into it too. We had a lot of disagreement with the network about how much of that storyline should be part of the show because they thought that there would be a lot of fatigue from the viewers about it. But But to Bravo's credit, it really was what was going on in that group of women. And we had no choice but to play it out because that they became obsessed with it. And of course, the... Uh, viewer feedback 
at the end of the season was the viewers were obsessed with it too. It oh. was like cereal. They all wanted <laughs> to know. It was our highest rated season ever. Which and is unbelievable I, for a 10th season in this day and age. Amazing. But okay, so digging in a little bit. So Megan King Edmonds comes on. Like, I'm not really envisioning what her storyline would have been without this, what seemed like an organic fight for the truth because she had this dealing with her husband's ex dying of cancer and I bought it you know like what would here's the great thing we never like we never know so obviously the number one question that people ask us is is the show real and it's so frustrating because all we can do is just throw our hands in the air and say we're not creative enough to come up with this shit and if anybody thinks that all of these women would comply with what we want to do they're utterly mistaken I so wish it were that easy I don't even think I wouldn't even ask that question and maybe it's the producer because you know I know I'm looking at it going this is not scripted this is not produced you can tell sometimes housewives are trying to tell their own stories and it reads as really unauthentic or it happened off camera and it's super confusing really convoluted and and who cares (laughs) so but it's um, and I think that can be kind of frustrating and one of the things we always tell the housewives is you can get away with being an asshole if you say sorry you can never get away with being a phony the audience sniffs that out as Lisa Renna would say you got own I can't do the good imitation, but oh, we but, need Amy yeah. Phillips for that. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> she's Amy. so good at the own it. Yeah, but it's true. It's really all about owning it in the yeah. end, right? That's it like really is. in the Bible of the housewives, right? They should have their own Bible that you guys give them. It's a problem because we end up <laughs> dealing with our friends and family members in real life and giving them housewives tips. Is it annoying? Like all the like, how much people want to talk about it? Because you That's could talk all about they it. want to talk. Yeah, like about. ad nauseum. Like I could literally talk I, for when hours. I go to a dinner party or an event. <laughs> I'm so reluctant to say what I do. You would think we're PAs. Because the minute you say you're involved with the housewives, that's it. You're done. The the whole night, they want to ask questions. And this usually from people who say they hate reality, they don't watch the housewives. There's a lot of that. They happen to know every storyline. they happen to know every detail. (laughs) Yeah, more than we do. That's funny. Yeah, the level of, I mean, I'm guilty of it. Like, Real Housewives, um, Vulture, New York Magazine Oh, yeah, it's great. I mean, Brian Moylan is, is, you should hire him. I mean, the most brilliant writer, he does the recaps on Beverly Hills and New York. I don't know if he does Orange Orange County. I feel like they, I don't know if they're doing that still, but... He let crying laughing when I read these. because And then, but the saddest part of it for me is that I'll spend an hour reading the comments. <laughs> the comments are even more fascinating because <laughs> the level to which people care and dissect everything. And of course, I'm guilty as charged, right? I'm never posting a comment, but I will read them. And it's like, it's it's a whole subculture. It's very funny, too, because by the time that the shows have aired, we've seen them a million times, <laughs> right. but it will have been a while ago. Yeah, so and you don't so, even remember. You don't even necessarily remember. No, so friends will just send an email <laughs> and just not even ask, like, how are you? And just jump right in with these really detailed questions. Or they'll say, I know? can't believe she said that. It's like, who is she and what did she right. say? Because they think... That's that funny, right? Like yeah. you're right. Like you're not producing other shows, or that that's that's the focus <laughs> of your life. So question like about question about like longevity as a housewife. So I look at someone like Brandy, who you know I really had a love hate with her through the seasons, and ended up really hating her. But I was like a champion when they all hated her. But is the key there that like if nobody likes you on the show, you really have no longevity? Yeah, because it, it's real in the sense that 
this is a group of friends, and if you don't fit into it, then (laughs) why are you there? It doesn't make any sense. So if you'd have to strain too much to get people in a room together, then it doesn't work. And you don't want to see week after week some explanation for why it is that someone who would never be included is included. Right. I had to invite Brandy. Yeah. It was the right thing to do. Or (laughs) even though we just had a blow up at the (laughs) bunko party, (laughs) I had already invited her to the picnic. So Well, that's uh, what I love what's going on with New York right now. Like they're flat out or just disinviting people to events because they don't want to be with them. Yeah. I'm like, that's real life. God bless them. Yeah. They're having a great season right now. This is an epic season yeah, good in New York. Oh my God. It's really fun. All bets are off. It's it's exciting. Yeah. It's very fun. So in terms of um, how you guys look at crafting a season from the beginning, um, do you sit with the housewives and say like, Hey, where's your life at? What do we want to? Where do we want to go? Like with Vicky this season, is it like? Because I can imagine she's going. I don't want to talk about Brooks. I don't want to talk about last season. But obviously, it's still bleeding over. So, like, how do you even approach that? We do. We sit down with each housewife and we find out everything that's going on in their lives, yeah. and everything that's on their schedule. And if they've got some exciting stuff that they've got planned beyond our shoot window, yeah, we ask them, Hey, can you move that up a little bit? Uh, and we. Other than encouraging them to have dinner parties or go out right. to lunch, and that's the only pushing we really do. We just want them to interact. But whatever happens within those interactions is completely authentic, and it always steers us in another direction. With Vicky this year, she absolutely said, I don't want to talk about Brooks. I'm not going to talk about Brooks. And we said to her, that's not going to be possible. Right. Sorry, honey. We we don't want the story to be all about Brooks this year, but you have unfinished business. And we're not going to – well, first of all, we don't restrict anything from the show. Right. But we're not going to restrict it. And if it comes up, if the ladies still want to talk about it, you need to deal with it. Our advice to you is deal with it. Get it out of the way so it can – we can move on from that. But I think that was harder than she uh, was going to be. And bets on whether they're getting back together – who knows? I say 100%. <laughs> I'm going to go all in. Well, Tamara thinks that they're <laughs> yeah, going to get back I together. Uh, I actually don't think they're going to get back together, but I know that they're still enmeshed in each other's lives. Oh, it's so toxic. So in terms of your guys' future, like obviously you're known for these kinds of really juicy doc shows. Um where do you want to go as a company? Do you want to keep the calling cart going as long as it's going? Do you want to branch out and to do totally different stuff? Like, how how do you navigate that? We're so greedy. We want to do anything <laughs> and everything. And, I, and it's true. I think that we have a lot of fun doing these shows. They're a lot of work. But every show is a lot of work in a different way. Um, we want to get back to our roots and do more formatted shows. We'd like to do huge shows. We are in development on some scripted projects right now, which is exciting to us. And I and think, are those scripted projects like in the sort of vein, like an odd mom out, like stuff that's consistent with sort of the reality stuff you've done or total departure from that? There uh, – one is, and and then there are some departures too. There are some unexpected projects. And I think that that's part of what's great about the company that Doug founded all these years ago is that evolution is really malleable. And evolution. That's always right. Evolving. Always evolving. Just realized. Yeah. Yeah. Great name. <laughs> Retroactively. <laughs> it all makes sense now. Yeah. Kind of. So um, – and you guys are, you know, you're, you're hot shots in town. So there's probably be a lot – of announcements coming up about your guys' future? 
Right? Who knows? I don't know. I don't know that we we're hot shots. We, are not we certainly hot don't shots feel that town. way. Yeah. We're just in deep Burbank just trying to crank out some shows. Hey, the best stuff happens in Burbank in this town, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we're going to we're going to transition into our uh sort of, you know, common questions that I ask across all the podcasts. And the and the first one and I'll t- we'll take turns here is what's your proudest accomplishment and professionally? I'm looking to Doug so he can go. <laughs> yeah, can you answer for me? Yeah. Uh I'm proud that 29 years in, evolution is still around and we're still a force to be reckoned with. We still have shows that are in the zeitgeist, that are in the public conversation all the time. I love when I'm at the grocery store and I hear people (laughs) talking about one of the shows. They have no clue who I am. I don't want them to know who I am, but I think, okay, I haven't made anything spectacular that's important. But I have made good entertainment over the years, and that feels good. Disagree. Very important as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and B, do you ever have that Woody Allen moment where you want to step in and go, no, that's actually not really what's happening. All the time. <laughs> all the time. I'm proud of a, a specific story, but we did a series with D. Snyder and his family for A&E. Yeah, I remember And that. it was a great series that didn't rate, but here's why I'm proud of it. When we embarked on that uh, Dee and his family were very suspicious of reality producers because Dee is a really savvy guy and has been in the business for a long time and had been screwed over enough that he was distrustful of anyone who would try to do something, not just with him, but with his family. And I'm proud of the fact that we remain friends with them, even though the show didn't work because we did right by them. And I think that that is a testament to, again, the company that Doug founded and the way that we try to do business. I think there's a lot of decent people that I've met in this business, and there's a lot of not decent, honorable people. And I agree. I I love to hear you say that because I think, again, that's your reputation. But um, that's what's going to speak volumes. It's not just saying, hey, look, we're the most loyal people you'll ever meet. Because, by the way, red flag if you say that. That means you will fuck me over hard. (laughs) So I know that. But, like, I also believe that. Um, you that's really all you have in the end because these relationships that we have with third-party producers, with talent, with networks, they're all so precarious. And to be able to say, like, we have the same partners we've always had. We're still the producers on the same shows. We're, you know, we still have relationships with people. And, uh, and my joke about that is that I, m- some of my very good friends still are talent, but it shows that I never sold because that – is why they never sold, is that there's people I would be friends with. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, right, makes some sense. We totally get that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, this is not the popular question, but I'm curious if you have a biggest regret. For the most part, I don't really have a lot of regrets. I, there are some silly regrets, like I wish we would have bought equipment sooner and <laughs> right. you know, figured out how to make more money. I wish we would have owned our buildings. Uh, I I wish that I would have stood up for myself more along the way, like during the Big Brother days and that kind of stuff. But I'm happy to say that really don't have any major regrets. I guess the only regrets that I have are taking on projects that we didn't necessarily love but took on because we liked and then didn't necessarily do with them what we should have or got busier with other priorities. And we don't do that anymore. Um, because it's kind of a live and learn thing. But I felt bad about that at the time because as a producer, you're doing many different projects. You have a lot of irons in the fire. And so it isn't fair to someone to take a project off the market and then let it languish. And you never intend to do that. It just happens. Totally. So I regret those instances. Um, what's the craziest show that you guys have ever pitched? Like just totally out there. 
Well, you had a show that you pitched ridiculed by Mike Darnell. Yes, which in I, the press, yeah. I, I take as a great honor to have Mike Darnell. And he singled it out in, he did. in past meetings or in subsequent meetings. That arbiter of taste. That many, many years ago, we took out a show called The Puke Chronicles. Because everybody has a story of their worst throw-up nightmare, right? You I never can, thought of it, but yeah, probably. And this show was going to, we were going to talk to real people and then do recrees of people's worst throw-up experiences. And I, I actually still think it's funny. Uh, and we pitched it to him, and of course they passed. And years later, he, he was I think, asked about the worst pitch he ever took. Right? And he in a in a newspaper article, yeah. and he mentioned it. But it just is great that it came from Mike Darnell because it's a guy who has some of the biggest hits, and you know is a brilliant television guy, but doing some crazy ass shit. Right, like for him to say that's out there, yeah. you know you've accomplished something. That like offended his sensibility. Right, like, ugh, yeah. would never. He did say in a meeting once, he said, uh, I finally took a pitch which was worse than yours. And really, what was it? And I can't remember who it was. It was the monkey it. on your back. But the, it was, it was, yeah. the pitch was called monkey on your back, where two people had to go from New York to Los Angeles each with a monkey on their back. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, my God. Love the title. Hilarious. Um, so in terms of oh, what, have you been brought a show that that resonates? It's like totally insane from a producer that you just like left to me like, oh, that was insane. We've taken some really bad pictures. <laughs> One of the ones that we talk about was um, someone came in and had a really bad project. And it was a docu-series that was it's like one of those docu-series that's based on a location, uh. which makes it really bad because <laughs> there's like no original thought that goes into it. It's just kind of like you should do a show here. Right, like Aspen. Yeah, right, exactly. And like you get it. And then the, the reason that the pitch was especially bad, though, is he had given us like a uh, two-page, single-space write-up on it and yeah. handed it to us at the beginning of the pitch and then proceeded to read what he had written to us and read it badly. Like he was stumbling on his own verbiage. It was so It was really bad. I, I, this so I wanted to cut him off and say like, you know, yeah, we can read. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure you can. Like it was just, it was just a bad pitch. Ugh, that's like not necessarily like the worst just, idea, not a good idea, not something right, we ever but not knowing done. How to pitch. But just not knowing how to pitch. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to just say like, can we just give you constructive criticism, or it's just not even worth it? You want to say that, but <laughs> you it's want not to. worth yeah. it. <laughs> And, um, okay, finally, so what are your guys' individual top three reality shows that are on right now that you just love to watch? And they can include your own. They do not include our own. <laughs> well, I'm a huge Shark Tank fan. Huh? I wish we would have come up with that show. I love that show. I cannot get enough of it. I, I Literally, I could watch it 24-7 and never, ever stop. That's the only show I can say that about. I love House Hunters, Bar Rescue. <laughs> right. What else? House um, Hunters is is like catnip. Yeah. I like everything on HGTV. Yeah. Yeah. A Flip lot of people, say, a lot of people say that. Yeah. yeah. They're adorable. Yeah. I love I love uh, everything on ID as well. Oh, you're a big true crime yeah. guy. Good. I don't watch tons of reality yeah. because it feels like work to me. Right. When I go home, I do watch scripted shows. Gilligan's Island. Yeah. Gilligan's Island. Mary, <laughs> Mary Tyler, Tyler Moore. Moore. <laughs> I love. What's your favorite scripted show? Current. <laughs> Not from 1970. Uh, well, right now I'm watching um, Bloodline. Oh, it's great. The second uh, season or the first? I just just finished two yeah. days ago the first season. 
Bloodline's a slow burn, though, right? Oh I feel God. like it doesn't really pick up till episode six, which is a big commitment. I mean, to me, if it wasn't for Coach, who's Kyle Chandler, but I'll still call him Coach, Coach. from Friday Lights, I don't know that I was stuck in there, even though it's really well done and beautiful. And I love those guys because they did damages, which I also thought was an amazing show. But it is, it takes a while to kind of pick it up, right? Uh, or no, you didn't feel I, that way. I got into you it were early. Okay. I was hooked early and really, really got sucked in. Yeah. I'm a. One of my all-time favorites is The West Wing. Loved that. Uh, Six Feet Under. I love The Americans. And I just started watching Breaking Bad. We were talking about it. Best show of all time. It is so good. Like you said, like episode to episode. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. I loved The Americans for a while. And then there was was like the last season at the beginning. I just started to get boring for me. But then I heard I made a huge mistake. So I might go back and rewatch. I binged. So I got into it. I watched all of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is a great show. Don't get me wrong. But I'm like, are they ever going to be found out? Like, (laughs) Carrie Russell's great. She's amazing. And now they're together in real life. Yeah. Had a baby and everything. How about that? Scandal. Mm -hmm. Well, guys, this was so much fun. So much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I really, I hope, I hope everybody, did we get it all out? Or did we feel complete and whole? Have us back for part two. That's right. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely.